0: this is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, a stroll through your local Barnes & Noble will reveal sheer numbers of biblical translations. There are study Bibles and self-help Bibles and Bibles with room in the margins to write Bibles written in Middle English and Victorian English and Modern English and a fair smathering of paraphrases which handle the biblical text fast and loose. As a Protestant, I was well aware of multiple translations, and I knew that some Protestant denominations preferred one Bible and others gravitated toward another. Imagine my shock becoming Catholic, and learning that the playing field was much smaller, even while the canon was much bigger. The versions of the Bible, which I had memorized so many Bible verses, were nowhere to be found, and I had to retire my favorite Bibles to read texts that were approved by the Catholic Church. Why? Well, it's simple. No one translates in a vacuum, and as the Italians say, traditore, traditore, which means the translator is the traitor which I've just had to translate for you. Imagine my surprise when the version that I'd come to love in Protestant seminary, the English Standard Version, was approved for liturgical use in India and propagated around the world. Well, Dr. Mark Giescheck was part of that process and has written a book to tell the story Bible Translation and the Making of the ESV Catholic Edition, published by the Augustine Institute. Dr. Mark Giszczek is the Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute, augustaninstitute.org. He specializes in Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as biblical theology and Catholic biblical interpretation. He blogs at catholicbiblestudent.com and joins us here today. Dr. Giszczek, thanks for being with
1: us. ATL, hey, It's great to be here. I uh- uh, I'm so happy we'll be talking about one of my favorite topics these days.
0: So I grew up on the NIV Bible, right? I, the new international version it's published by Zondervan. When I think of a verse, it's the verse, it's the, the version that comes into my head because I spent so much of my time in Sunday school and vacation Bible school, and even just at home memorizing that version of scripture. Uh, and, and I learned after the fact that there's some really key things that are done in the NIV that lead towards a, a non-traditional kind of denomination, towards that that um, non creedal as the Baptist would say. Yeah. Uh, for instance, any time that the word teaching—listen uh, to these teachings that I give you—anytime uh, it's in a positive light, that Greek word is Uh, translated as teachings. And anytime it's in a negative light, that same Greek word is translated as traditions. So as to kind of skew us away from tradition and toward teaching. And those kinds of things that we as readers don't even think about, those are all things that biblical scholars who are working on creating new versions of Scripture, they're keeping in mind, not necessarily to be nefarious, but to communicate a certain idea of the way that they best understand the Bible. So this is why the church has given us really strict rules of interpretation. Before we get into the ESV specifically, can you help us understand what is the Catholic, uh, not only as individual Catholics, but that the hierarchical Catholic perspective towards biblical studies that l- brings us to a place where we do have Many fewer translations that are Protestant brothers and sisters.
1: yeah, well, oh, I mean that's a that's a really fun way of of thinking about the problem. I think that um, the reason we have so few English translations that are Catholic is that um, the Catholic Church is a multinational multilingual church, right? So there are a billion Catholics around the world who worship in a variety of liturgical situations and in many, many, many different languages. So in that way, uh, the Catholic Church is very different from a lot of uh, Protestant communions that we're familiar with, because um, a lot of those are operating within, you know, basically an English language environment, and they're operating in a kind of um, quasi-liturgical or non-liturgical way, so that the Bible translation really becomes the um, the most important thing, uh, and there's really not a whole lot of other... Stuff going on, right? You don't have you don't have a, a mass to translate. You don't have a canon law to translate. You don't have a Roman martyrology to translate. You don't have a liturgy of the hours to translate. So the Catholic translators have to do a lot of work outside of Bible translation alone, and Bible translation is just one component of a much larger translation project that they're engaged in. And I think English, in particular, is really special as a, a language for the Catholic Church because. It's become, obviously, the most widely spoken language on planet Earth. And so in that way, uh, Archbishop Roche, now Cardinal Roche, likes to say that English is the new Latin. Um, and what that means in practice for translators is that a lot of uh, Catholic translators of the liturgy and of the lectionary, of catechisms, things like that, are actually looking to the English version to translate rather than the Latin. Right, because they find the Latin difficult or whatever. And so they'll, they'll be consulting the Latin, but they'll, they'll also really be looking at the English. So the English plays this kind of like dominant role among Catholic translations, which is why the Vatican has been very interested in getting English Bible translation and English liturgical translation done really well, because they know that translators from other languages are going to be looking to English uh, for the decisions they're going to be making. So, what are some of
0: the considerations that we have to make as Catholics, and as you, as a Catholic scholar, when when approaching a new translation of the text? Yeah,
1: I mean, there are so many different levels to to answering the question. I think it starts with what what I think of as the text. So, there's a, a chapter in the book about which text is really the Bible, and uh, mm-hmm. the deeper you Wade into the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic and even the Latin traditions. The more you realize that, well, the biblical text is not like unstable or something like that. It there are decisions that translators have to make that are textual in nature, right? So, um, one of my favorite examples of this is the Book of Sirach, where for a long time we just had uh, Greek. We had Greek versions of the Book of Sirach, a couple of different ones, right? But then we discovered. I think it was three or four or five Hebrew manuscripts of the book of Sirach in the late 1800s. And so now those uh, Hebrew manuscripts are being incorporated into the translation of the book of Sirach. And um, it just means that as you're working through the translation process, you have to begin with these textual decisions, right? And then you start get it, you start uh, being able to make translation decisions. And those start at the level of what does this word mean? What does this phrase mean? Where is this word used elsewhere in Scripture, and where is this word used maybe elsewhere in Greek or elsewhere in Hebrew? Um, and then it builds up to really refined decisions in the English language, right? What's the best word to use to, to convey the meaning in this particular context? And different Bible translators have different philosophies about this. so. Um, they kind of vary on a wide spectrum for being as sort of mathematical and literal as possible to being as open and free as possible. And um, the difficult thing is that there really isn't a perfect way to do translation. It really is kind of an art form. And uh, I like to think of the kind of controversy, ongoing controversy among translators as uh, really promoting two different visions for accuracy in translation. So on, on the one hand, you'd have the kind of literal word for word style translation. And the one that's sort of maybe most notorious for that in English is the New American Standard Bible, uh, which is a, a Protestant translation, uh, not and not a Catholic one, but it came out around 1967, I think. Um, and it's really a revision of the American Standard Version, the ASV. And uh, they've actually updated the NASB a couple times, times, but, but in that translation, they try to translate every word from Hebrew into English using the same word. They try to be very, very accurate in terms of um, just conveying the meaning as clearly as possible. but they even italicize words that aren't aren't in the original that they added for clarity.
0: To some extent, you know we, we can see the problems that might arise from that. There's benefit of of being able to see word for word, but then you have things like imagine trying to translate it's raining cats and dogs. <laughs> right as soon as you get into uh, 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 idiom yeah. specifically not only idiom from a different language but from, uh, you're going through multiple languages yeah. you're starting from you know uh, aramaic and then to the greek and then to the the latin and then, then to the english or however you got there yeah. you've got multiple languages of idiom and in multiple generations that now that idiom may not even mean anything in the original language anymore
1: yeah yeah. So, okay. So one of my favorite examples of this actually is this word in Hebrew, shakar, which means, well, it's usually translated in almost all of our Bibles as strong drink. But if you start reading, oh, I don't know, Wikipedia, you realize the distillation wasn't really invented until the Middle Ages. They didn't have strong drink in the ancient world. It really is beer, right? It was, it was al- an alcoholic beverage made from uh, barley for the most part, which we would recognize as beer. But I think beer was considered uncouth and, uh, you know, uh, proper English circles, you know, people don't drink that stuff, you know, except for, you know, the lowbrow or whatever. And so uh, the word beer was not introduced, say, into the King James or uh, in the most English Bible translations. I think the NIV 2011 actually brought it back. Um, it's not even in, in the uh, ESV. So, uh, you know, in the Gieschek translation, you know, there's going to be beer, but, you know, in the other one, strong drink. But again, that's like a cultural problem, right? Where you have a word that has a meaning, but it doesn't have an exact correlation in our culture. And so people come up with a way of of translating it into our language and context that may or may not be perfectly accurate. You know, there might be a better word. um, But I I guess for uh, some English Bible translators in their cultural context, it would be inappropriate or, I don't know, uh, unholy or something to translate it that way as beer.
0: Well, and you, anytime that you are are translating, whether it be f- um, this formal equivalence that you're talking about, that word for word, yep. or even the, in the dynamic equivalence of thought for thought, yep. you're still having to, to make a decision based on one possible meaning of a word that might have four or five multivalent meanings and you're going to lose nuance just from the process of translating.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ways to think about the problem is to put yourself in the shoes of one of those translators at the UN, you know, so if you ever see one of those news reports, you know, you've got, uh, you know, all the diplomats are out there talking to each other, but they all have headphones on because they don't all speak each other's languages. And then behind this glass panel, you'll see all these people who also have headphones, but microphones on. And they're live translating the conversation as it's unfolding, right? So whether it's a speech or a dialogue or whatever, those translators, I mean, their brains must be amazing. I don't know how they do what they do because they simultaneously translate what they're hearing from one language into another. Well, there's no way that they can do that in a word for word style format. They can't do it like the NASB, right? They're going to be doing that in a thought for thought dynamic equivalence way. And they're actually listening to the next phrase while they're translating the previous one. I think it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing. I had a, a, mm-hmm. a really fun experience earlier this year where I gave a talk and we had a translator who was live translating into Spanish while I was giving the talk. And at one point she stood up because I started talking too quickly, right? And she needed me to just slow down just a little <laughs> bit so that she could she could keep up with the translation. And um, I think if you think about the problem that those translators have, and then you kind of Bring that back to the biblical context. You can see how difficult the process is, and and yet how important it is, right? You could have diplomats in a high tension situation talking about things like war and weapons, and uh, you know huge amounts of money and other you know really important things. And it's essential that you get the thought across correctly so that the the person on the receiving end under understands. And so that's where I just want to go back to the idea of the two visions for accuracy, right? One, the word-for-word style is, well, we want to be as transparent as possible to the original text, right? What does it really say, right? Whereas the the other style of translation, which we can call dynamic equivalence or functional equivalence or thought-for-thought style translation, has a different vision for accuracy, right? It's about the reader's understanding, right? And and so for, for that idea... It's not so much that we want to convey the words of the Bible word for word, it's that we want to convey the ideas that are in those words mm-hmm. into the target language as, so that the reader really understands what they mean. And in the first style of translation, where the ESV Catholic edition falls, right, in the word for word style translation, the, the theory of what a translation is supposed to do is different, right? In a word for word mm-hmm. style translation, the translator is trying to do as little work as possible. Right, he's trying to right. uh, basically give the reader a kind of magical magnifying glass, right, to look into the Greek or the Hebrew, you know, uh, and just see what's there, right, see the data that's there, and then the work of interpretation is like a separate step. Where getting to understanding might take some explanation, some preaching, might take some study Bible notes, a commentary, in order to really understand what the text is saying. But the reader, the English reader, has as much data as possible. Whereas a thought-for-thought style translation, they're really going about this in a different way. They're, they're actually making the translation do more work mm-hmm. than a word-for-word word style. So something like the NIV or even, you know, more, more expressive and expansive ones like the you know, New Living Translation or even the Message, which is kind of notorious, right? <laughs> they're actually using the text of the Bible to kind of explain what the Bible's trying to say mm-hmm. rather than just to say what the Bible's trying to say. Right. Does that make yes. sense? It,
0: it It puts and specifically coming from the the tradition that I came from, which believes that the Bible is clear and that the Bible uh, has all of the answers and the rule for life, yeah it it makes more sense from that perspective to try and make the text do as much work as possible. yeah because if the text is difficult to understand or or requires further study, then then those two ideas about the Bible don't don't stand up quite as well. yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, the other thing th- to say about the dynamic equivalence crowd, right the thought-for-thought Thought translation crowd, it was really led in the mid-20th century by this guy named Eugene Nida, who's a, a linguist and Bible translator uh, and essentially uh, brought about the United Bible Societies and all of these groups that were um, uh, going to be translating the Bible into lots of different languages around the world. Their job was really to translate the Bible as quickly as possible into as many languages as possible. And it's really hard to do that with a word-for-word style. So for the most part, those translators are operating in a dynamic equivalent style, but they're doing a great service, right, because they're bringing the word to so many languages that didn't have it before. And, um, and, and so, you know, I think Eugene Knight is a great guy. And I think that, you know, there's a there's a reason to use a dynamic equivalence translation, uh, sometimes. Um, But this brings me back to a story. So uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but uh, there is a translation of the Bible into Hawaiian pigeon English. And uh, one day, one of my friends uh, somehow had a copy of this and just put it on my desk uh, as a present. And uh, it's just a really strange, strange pigeon English way of talking, you know? And it just sounds very informal and and almost bizarre, you Mm -hmm. know, to people who aren't familiar with it. And I just thought it was kind of a joke, you know, and and got rid of it. Well, a couple years later, uh, one of my friends came up to me and said, hey, I've got a roommate um, that I'm trying to evangelize. Right. And she only speaks a a Hawaiian pigeon English and she doesn't understand the Bible, like the, the Bible that I have. Is there a Bible in that, in that dialect that I could give to her that might be helpful? And I thought, oh no, I got rid of the copy I had. Uh, you know, but it was really important for her to have, um, a Bible in a, in a, in a version of English that she could easily understand. Right. And so I feel like that's a great example where, um, you know, we need to be translating the Bible in a variety of ways for a variety of audiences so that people can really receive the word. Um, But when it comes to the formal presentation of the word, say in the context of the mass, it's really important to have a formal equivalent style translation, right? One that is uh, both respecting the original language and is offering an elegant and formal presentation of the word in the target language. Um, And I think this is where the Vatican's translation guidelines have really brought us, right? Uh, In the 2001 document, Liturgium Authenticum, the Vatican kind of lays out its vision for liturgical translation and Bible translation. And the key line in there is that they emphasize that the that we should translate with fidelity, maximum possible fidelity, to the original text. And I just think that's such an awesome way of thinking about it, right? That our job as translators is not to be inventive, not to be creative, but to be faithful, right? To translate with maximum possible fidelity so that the readers who are hearing the word, whether it's in the context of Mass or in the context of a Bible study or their private Bible reading, they're really encountering the words of God without very much interference, right? Uh, And and the idea of a word-for-word style translation like the ESV is to turn down the interference as far as possible so people can really receive the word as it is.
0: So let's talk about these liturgical translations. Yeah. Here in the United States, we have the um, the New American Bible Revised Edition. This yeah. is from the Confraternity. Uh, it's published by the Confraternity, which is in some way connected to the USCCB. Uh, then you have, you know, we've got the RSVCE, the Revised Standard yep. uh, Version, uh, that that comes from a revision, I think, of King James, if I'm correct in this. And then from there, we've got the, the uh, RSVCE, the RSV2CE, which is published by Ignatius, and then the R- the NRSVCE. But so the New Revised Standard is a revision of Revised Standard, and the RSV2CE <laughs> is a revision of Revised Standard, and now we also have the the ESV, yeah. uh, which is a, a revision of the a different revision of the Revised yeah. Standard. Um, I, my question is is kind of multivalent. One, how many revisions of the revised standard do we have and is there going to be? And second, um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the Catholic Church and the translators from the Catholic Church gathering around this Bible that was distinctively not a Catholic Bible to begin with, both in the RSV to begin with and then also even in the ESV, which was published by, um, by an evangelical publisher, Crossway, Yep. That what was it about this specific Bible that that we looked at it and said this is going to be a good translation for us to use in a Catholic context and in Mass um, when it was something that wasn't originated in the Catholic Church.
1: The way I like to think about it is that there are really three families of Bible translations in the Catholic world in English. Okay, there's the Jerusalem Bible. That's the easiest to understand. So the original one came out in 1966, then the New Jerusalem Bible in 1985, which was the work of Dom Henry Wansborough, and then the Revised New Jerusalem Bible, which actually just came out in 2019, also his work. Um, Then there's the New American Bible, which was sponsored by the USCCB and the Catholic Biblical Association of America. The original one came out in 1970. The Revised New Testament in 1986, the Revised Psalms in 91, and the Revised Old Testament in 2010. So that's what we're reading in the liturgy now in the United States is the N-A-B-R-E, and it's under revision yet again right now. The RSV is the third family and the most complicated. So it started as a Protestant translation, New Testament 1946, Old Testament 52, and then the Catholic edition took a long time. they finished translating the Apocrypha, so the, the books that aren't in the Protestant canon but are in the Catholic canon, which we call the Duro canon, in 1957 as a Protestant publication. But um, the Catholic edition took a while to get approved. There were certain biblical Catholic biblical scholars in England who wanted a Catholic edition of the RSV and thought it would be good for ecumenical relations around the time of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, There was a certain cardinal who was not so interested in that, but he eventually died. Uh, And then his successor approved what became the RSV Catholic edition in 65 and 66. Um, They didn't really make any changes at all to the Old Testament. um, And they only made, I think it's like 29 changes to the New Testament for the RSV Catholic edition versus Protestant edition. And they were really kind of cosmetic right they were changes to make it sound more catholic um then the nrsv like you said comes out in 1990 uh but the nrsv leans really hard on the direction of inclusive language and a lot of people didn't like that including the vatican which i i talk a lot about that in the book um which then paved the way for the rsv second catholic edition which came out in 2006 um that updates a handful of things. Like it's a small number of changes from the old RSV. Essentially, it gets rid of the these and the vows and other kind of archaic sounding language. Um, yeah. And really the ESV was translated right around the same time, right? It was 1999 to 2001, when the ESV translators were mainly at work and they engaged in also a revision of the RSV that was a little bit more extensive. Uh, so they changed, I think they say about 60,000 words or about 8% of the RSV to what is now the ESV. So, this goes back to your main question, though, which is like, wait, why are so many people interested in revising the RSV? And why aren't Catholics doing a new from scratch translation and so forth? So, this is a difficult question. (laughs) Okay. And I think that the main difficulty is. it takes a lot of effort to produce a Bible translation from scratch. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's not the only problem. There have been a handful of like single scholar, like I'm going to translate the whole New Testament and publish it on my own kind of translations that have come out over the years. Um, But I think that the RSV, the original RSV had such wide acceptance um, in mainline Protestantism. And then of course, in the Catholic church, that it's, it really is kind of a touchstone. And what's funny about the RSV is that it it it's really actually the third uh, major translation of the King James, right? Because the King James comes out, what, 1611, right? Uh, and then it's not until the 1800s that scholars engage in a major revision of the King James, which becomes the what we know as the English revised version, or just the revised version. Uh, this is in the 1880s, 1890s, Um It's kind of a funny story because there was a group of English scholars and a group of American scholars, and they both met together and talked about what to do, right? And the American scholars sent a letter to the English scholars with all of their suggested changes, and the English scholars didn't do any of them. Uh, And they just (laughs) kind of put them in the back, right, as like end notes. So the Americans weren't exactly thrilled about that. So they decided, you know what, we're going to do our own revision. Uh, So that became the American Standard Version, or the ASV, uh, which is right around the time of World War I, a little bit before. And they uh, put the English scholars' revisions in in the back of theirs. Uh, So um, so you ended up with two revisions, and the one that, that we're more familiar with, the ASV, was simply just called the Standard Version. And it was used in a lot of mainline Protestant seminaries Uh, before the publication of the RSV.
0: We're going to pause here for just a moment because we're coming up on a break, but I want to talk more about this in just a moment. But in the meantime... We've been talking about all these various versions of the Bible. I'm curious what your preferred version of the Bible is. Come over to social media and let's have a conversation. Facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle is at outside the walls. And we're talking today with Dr. Mark Gieschek, associate professor of sacred scripture at the Augustine Institute. He specializes in Old Testament wisdom literature as well as biblical theology and Catholic biblical interpretation. The new book is Bible Translation and the Making of the ESV Catholic, published by Augustine Institute. You can get your copy at AugustineInstitute.org. And don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief in our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today about the English Standard Version ESVCE Catholic Edition. Uh, it's recently... Made available. It's available here in the United States through the Augustine Institute, the Augustine Bible. They've got multiple uh, ways to get a hold of that. It's hardback and leather bound and just a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I have to tell you that I first came across the ESV as a Protestant uh, when I was at Protestant Seminary. Uh, I picked it up just about when it came out. I think um, July of 2001 is when I got my copy. Oh, wow. Uh, And and it was my favorite Bible. And it was the, one of the hardest things about becoming Catholic was realizing that I can't read this thing anymore. I've got to go get this other version of the Bible. And so I was so thrilled. I mean, I just can't tell you how excited I was that the ESV had a Catholic edition now. And I had, I had all the books. Uh, And of course, Mark Gieschek was part of that process. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being here on the show.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm really delighted to be here, and I'm happy too to celebrate the uh, the publication of the ESV Catholic Edition. I think that it really represents an advance in uh, in Catholic Bible translation, and it really is um, a breath of fresh air for us. You know, we've we've really been um, hanging out in those three families of Bible translations for a long time, and it's really nice to have a brand new translation to to sink our teeth into. And, um, you know, it's being used in the lectionary, both in India and it's going to be adopted in England and Scotland by the end of this year is my understanding. And uh, it's just really exciting to see uh, a new translation be available for Catholics that's contemporary, but also formal. uh, And that's something that can be agreed upon across the Anglophone world. One of the things I love about the ESV team is that it included Americans and Englishmen and I think that that really ended up producing a better final product than if we just had Englishmen or just had Americans. Um, yeah. And I love the fact that they tried to produce something in formal English rather than just a kind of like informal global English. Um, and I, right. I really think they did a service not just to our churches, but to the to the English language, right, by producing it in this way. So just before
0: the break, you were taking us through kind of the family tree of the ESV, and we got right up to it. We got through yeah. the RSV2CE. That's my favorite page in the book. Oh, you, oh, man, you you can't see this, but I'm looking at a uh, a graph, a family tree of sorts, showing us how we got this version of the Bible.
1: Yeah. Um. One. Yes, yeah, so that's my favorite page of the book. It took me a long time to draw that diagram.
0: <laughs> one of the things that I, I have always been struck by, in the ESV specifically, uh, is— Often, when you go towards that formal equivalence, that that word for word translation, you lose a lot of the beauty. It ends up being very uh, wooden, yeah. is often the term that's used for yeah. it, and you lose the poetry of it. Yeah. And the ESV somehow managed to still capture the poetry that we see in in those older Middle English translations that that modern English translations just lack.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think part of that was because they were conscious of the need for beauty in the Word of God, and the kind of gravity of their task as translators, and that's represented by the fact that on the translation oversight committee for the ESV, they actually included a English literature scholar, Leland Ryken. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he wears a bow tie and loves talking about English style and and this sort of thing, and. Um, you know, not an expert in Hebrew and Greek, but an expert in English. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a really important ingredient to the success of the ESV is that they were listening to the cadence of the English language as they're working with it. And um, and those guys, you know, I mean, a, a lot of them are very elderly now, but they cut their teeth on the King James Bible and the RSV. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they they really had the, the King James english which is really you know traditional formal english like they had that deep inside themselves and i think that um their sense for english was really strong now does that mean that it's a perfect translation in every way and they never made any mistakes no but i do think that they achieved a kind of beauty and balance that is pretty rare in bible translations mm-hmm. um and that honestly left a lot of things intact from the rsv you know they didn't um They didn't translate from scratch. They're just revising the RSV as they go, and they're actually voting on uh, whether to change. And my understanding is to approve a change from the RSV to the ESV required a two-thirds vote of that board of 12 12 men, the Translation Oversight Committee. And uh, I think that their seriousness about that process and, and their seriousness about English led to a good result. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and this comes back to scripture. and One of the reasons that I prefer this kind of translation to those that you were talking about earlier that are just kind of one-offs, whether it be Eugene Peterson and the message that you mentioned earlier, sure. or Monsignor Ronald Knox, who yeah. wrote a lovely translation, but it still has that hallmark of being a single-person translation, yeah. is that when you have a number of people engaged in this— there is safety, you know. The, yeah. the Psalms talks about in the multitude of counselors, there is safety.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a real that's a real key thing. Not just for the ESV, but also for the King James version. So, mm-hmm. when the King James was translated, they gathered together. I think it was over sixty scholars and a bunch of different groups um, in order to translate it. And then a similar um, effort was undertaken for the the English Revised Version, the ASV and the RSV where you gather together dozens of scholars, they have periodic meetings, they make proposals, they vote, Um, all of those things which can be kind of annoying I think are actually really important for what you're talking about. Um, It's about safety, right? It's about quality, it's about um, hearing things that uh, one person might not notice but two or three or four people put together will notice. Uh, I mean, one example of that, I remember um, there are some translations that will begin a line, say in the Psalms or in other biblical poetry, with you who, right? Y-O-U-W-H-O. And if you're not listening to that being read out loud, you can't hear how ridiculous it sounds, right? And so I think in the ESV, I don't think there are that many you who's. I guess I could search for them, but- (laughs) Uh, there are things like that that I think a group of scholars who are conscious of different aspects of the process mm-hmm. will notice. and, uh, and in, the, in the ESV process, they had that core group of 12 scholars, but then they have a larger group of about 60 who are, who are giving input and an even larger group of about 100. So you have quite mm-hmm. a few people involved in the process who are reading drafts and who are giving input, making suggestions. And all of that is kind of making its way up into the decision-making process.
0: So let's talk about how the ESV by Crossway uh, Publishers, Evangelical Publisher, uh, made its way to yep. the Catholic Church. It came through the the bishops in India, the bishops' conference in India, but it didn't go straight there. We started yeah. with the, the ESV, and then we had the ESV Anglicized version for Protestants in, in England. Yep. And then... And then we had the anglicized version that included the apocrypha, and then through the process of going to the, um, the through the Indian bishops' conference, that was then changed. And I'm, I'm curious, what was the process of changing
1: yeah.
0: what they know as the, Deuter- the the apocrypha into the translation of the Deuterocanon? Which, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, was the primary difference uh, between the ESVCE and the ESV anglicized apocrypha. Edition.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is, I need to publish a a blog post on how many versions of the ESV are there really? Right. Um, Because uh, I'm actually really curious to get your copy, your 2001 edition. I don't have one of those. I've only got the 2004. You know, it's the earliest I've got. And uh, early on, they actually had made a few typos and mistakes or whatever that they cleaned up silently. And I allude to that in the book. But it's one of those things where it'd be really fun to, like, dive really deep and figure out how many tweaks were made silently early on. And then over the years, the Translation Oversight Committee has released a few lists of updates uh, to the translation. So um, there haven't been that many, but it's just worth mentioning that um, there are some key texts like Genesis 3.16 that have been tweaked by the Translation Oversight Committee uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. And um, in addition to that, though you mentioned the ESV with Apocrypha, which mm-hmm. Crossway put out uh, with Oxford University Press in 2010, and so that had the what we refer to as Catholics as the Deuterocanon uh, included in it. They also put out a really unusual version <laughs> of the uh, of the Bible with none other than the Gideons. So the Gideons have been distributing the Bible to millions and millions and millions of people, always the right. King James Version. That's the one that you find in your hotel room. You know, you know, if you open up the drawer, you find a Bible in there. It's placed by the Gideons. Well, the Gideons are big believers in the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek version uh, of the Bible that the King James was based on. And there are a few key differences between the Textus Receptus and what scholars view nowadays as the best New Testament text. So Crossway actually permitted in 2013 a Gideon version of the ESV based on the Textus Receptus. So they actually changed a bunch of key texts in the New Testament to conform to the Textus Receptus so that the Gideons would would like it and then would distribute the ESV. Hmm. Okay. In 2016, Crossway released a final list of changes and declared that the ESV will remain unchanged forever. And, uh, they got criticized for that in in Christianity today and by a few other people. And so then they released a second announcement saying, okay, well, maybe we'll make some minimal and infrequent changes in the future. Um, and, uh, but anyway, after that, actually it led to the production of the Catholic edition. So they got a call from Nigel Fernandez from Asian trading Corp back in 2017 uh, asking if Crossway would be interested in releasing a Catholic edition of the ESV in India. And um, Lane Dennis's wife, Ebeth, uh, grew up as a missionary kid in India. And so she had a strong interest in serving the Christian community in India. And it seemed like a really good fit for Crossway and their mission. So Crossway is unusual, right? They're not a for-profit publisher. Uh, instead, they they view themselves as a non-profit christian publishing ministry so they actually give away lots and lots of bibles they support missionaries um and they do other projects that are really oriented toward ministry you know and and um helping the church and not just toward you know making more money or publishing more books so they saw this as a, as a great kind of mission opportunity and um uh one thing led to another, and Lane Dennis and Ebeth and other representatives from Crossway found themselves at a meeting of bishops in, in 2018 in, uh, in India um, as the, uh, the ESV Catholic edition was uh, first re- announced and released. So that was really a great moment where I think you see a kind of meeting of minds between Catholics and Protestants over mm-hmm. accurate Bible translation and a real willingness to work together for the advance of the gospel. And I really think um, <clears throat> a lot of that, that ecumenical spirit, uh, we can really attribute to J.I. Packer, who yeah. was the, the, the chairman of the Translation Oversight Committee or, or the lead member of the, of the Translation Oversight Committee, the senior member, and uh, and and really a lot of the inspiration behind the ESV. But he has always been conscious of this need for good Catholics and good evangelicals to work together, uh, as far as, is possible for the advance of the gospel. And I think this is just another example of, uh, of that spirit. Um, so I, I think it's, um, uh, beautiful that it was able to be published before his passing. And, um, and I think that, um, yeah, I think that the ESV, you know, is going to be very valuable for the church, uh, in India, Uh, and in other Anglophone countries that adopt it for the lectionary.
0: We've been talking today with Dr. Mark Mark Gieschek, Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at the AugustanInstitute.org. The book is called Bible Translation and the Making of the ESV Catholic Edition. It's published by the Augustan Institute. You can also find Dr. Gieschek's work uh, where he blogs at CatholicBibleStudent.com. Dr. Gieschek, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a lot of fun talking
0: to you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Mark Giescheck, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there looking through the archives, you might decide that you want even more. And the good news is there's always more. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air and in gratitude. We like to give them a little bit extra, an extra question or two with our guest, an extra insight, an extra bit of time, sometimes even some video chats or video uh, uh, video segments. And if that is something that's intriguing to you, I want to invite you to come over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link there in the menu, and look through the options. Consider being a part of that community. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention as we've been talking about Scripture all day today. Let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum is your pathway to reading sacred Scripture in line with the church. Verbum connects the magisterium to the fathers and doctors of the church, the catechism to scripture, biblical commentaries. All of these resources are available, and they're all linked together in this wonderful, interconnected, amazing library. You can learn more at verbum.com. Our reading from scripture this week comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he says, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter four. And here I think that we I'm fairly familiar with this passage, and perhaps you've heard it as well. We we often uh, it comes up in Mass periodically. But there's two parts of the Scripture, and I don't know that I've often put them together. I'm used to hearing, if today you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. And I'm used to hearing, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But I'm not used, I think, to hearing those two together. At least today I don't feel like I'm used to hearing them together. And, and they go together in a particular way. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Well, how do we strive to enter that rest? Often that we just consider that the ending of the previous passage, and then it's completely separated from the next little bit. Then there's a period there, right? From the same sort of disobedience period, for the word of God is living and active. Well, when there's a for, you got to go back and see what it's there for. And here's what it's there for this is the way that we strive to enter that rest. We allow ourselves to come into contact with the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to discern between the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which let's be honest, sometimes we can convince ourselves that our thoughts and intentions are something other than what they really are. And so here We strive to enter that rest by encountering the Word of God, because when we encounter the Word of God, it challenges us, it forms us, it directs us, it gives us insight into ourselves, into our own hearts. And when we encounter and allow ourselves and put ourselves in the proximity of the Word of God, we have that opportunity for it to be today, the day that we hear His voice and do not harden our hearts. So let's do that. Let's spend time this week pulling out the Bible, opening up your verbum, doing something, reading the mass readings for the day, whatever you do, taking that maybe early in the morning so that that word carries you throughout the day as your mind wanders, it's allowed to be brought back to that reading of the day. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts so that we who are in communion with God, would enter into that Sabbath rest that he offers. Our reading from Church History today is going to come from uh, Verbum Domini, which is a, uh, I think it's an apostolic exhortation written by Benedict XVI back in 2010. In reaffirming the profound connection between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, We have also laid the basis for an understanding of the significance and the decisive value of the living tradition and the sacred scriptures and the church. Indeed, since God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, the divine word spoken in time is bestowed and consigned to the church in a definitive way, so that the proclamation of salvation can be communicated effectively in every time and place." The living tradition is essential for enabling the church to grow through time in the understanding of the truth revealed in the scriptures. Indeed, by means of the same tradition, the full canon of the sacred books is known to the church, and the holy scriptures themselves are more thoroughly understood and constantly made more effective in the church." Ultimately, it is the living tradition of the Church which makes us adequately understand sacred Scripture as the Word of God. Although the Word of God precedes and exceeds sacred Scripture, nonetheless, Scripture as inspired by God contains the divine Word in an altogether singular way. We see clearly, then, how important it is for the people of God to be properly taught and trained to approach the sacred scripture in relation to the church's living tradition, and to recognize in them the very word of God. Fostering such an approach in the faithful is very important from the standpoint of the spiritual life. Here, it might be helpful to recall the analogy drawn from the fathers of the church between the word of God which became flesh and the word which became a book. The dogmatic constitution de verbum takes up this ancient tradition which holds, as St. Ambrose says, that the body of the Son is the Scripture which we have received, and declares that the words of God expressed in human language are in every way like human speech, just as the word of the Eternal Father when He took on Himself the weak flesh of human beings became like them. When understood in this way, Sacred Scripture presents itself to us in the variety of its many forms and content, as a single reality. Indeed, through all the words of sacred Scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance, in whom he expresses himself completely. St. Augustine had already made the point clearly. Remember that one alone is the discourse of God which unfolds in all sacred Scripture. And one alone is the word which resounds on the lips of all the holy writers. In short, by the work of the Holy Spirit and under the guidance of the Magisterium, the Church hands on to every generation all that has been revealed in Christ. The Church lives in the certainty that her Lord, who spoke in the past, continues today to communicate his word in her living tradition and in sacred scripture. Indeed, the Word of God is given to us in sacred Scripture as an inspired testimony to revelation. Together with the Church's living tradition, it constitutes the supreme rule of faith. That reading comes from Verbum Domine from Benedict XVI back in 2010. I think it's an apostolic exhortation. Uh, It may may be a a document under it. There's lots of different kinds of things, right? There's apostolic letters, apostolic exhortations. It's one of those written by Benedict Sixteenth. You can find the full text over at the Vatican, vatican.va, or you can find it in your Verbum library, verbum.com, where you can actually use that piece of software to embody this kind of reading, where you read scripture in Communion with the Church, reading uh, informed by the the Fathers and Doctors of the of the Church, informed by the magisterial documents, and much more. This is a different way of reading. It's one that doesn't assume uh, that that even our own study is enough. It's one that assumes that the Church is smarter than we are. It's been around longer than we have, and and doesn't make any assumptions about. Um, as, as we were talking with Dr Gecheckek earlier uh, it, it's really easy to ignore or to miss certain nuances that that come through scripture because of translation and so by reading scripture in light of the church with the church uh, and not going off into our own uh, interpretations but interpreting scripture together with the church uh, it gives us safety it gives us um, insight, and it helps us more fully to understand that good news that God longs to give us through his word, which as we hear it and soften our hearts and humble ourselves, we are invited into that Sabbath rest to realize that this is not dusty book's or old words on a page. But this is God's invitation to us to enter into that divine life, to enter into relationship, deep and abiding relationship with him. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com and click that Patreon link to learn more and join their numbers